hop into today's read aloud. We have Jessica Mansa from the uh, Clarence Mingo's uh, Office of uh, the Auditor for Franklin County. Uh, she's a former music teacher. Um, <laughs> um, and from the, originally from the Cleveland area, but is now permanently residing here in Columbus. And she's going to read for us today excerpts from Waiting Home. That's Waiting, W-A-D-I-N-G, Waiting Home. Um, and I'll just let her get started, if, you, if, if that's okay. Sure, that's fine, thank you. Um, once again, I'm Jessica. I am the administrative assistant for uh, Franklin County's Auditor Department with Clarence Mingo. Um, just started working here in October. So uh, I worked with the Board of Revision who helps uh, lower the property value of homes. We know how the economy has been. Worked there for two months and now I'm the administrative assistant. So I like to be around people because I'm more in a quiet office area. Um, I am reading Waiting Home. Can everyone hear me? Everyone can hear me? Okay, okay. I can use my big loud teacher voice, so that's fine with me. Um, stumbled across this book, just trying to find something to read while my daughter was at the library. We share her love of reading. Uh, I highly encourage you to read it. I know I'm not going to finish reading it today. I wanted to do excerpts of it, but because New Orleans and Louisiana has such a rich history, I have to kind of read through and the action goes very fast. It's more uh, related to the Hurricane Katrina story. So it's a historical fiction which Ms. Sesco uh, advised me because it has a lot of history in it, but the people of course are fictional. So, um, but you can imagine this being a very true story. So I am going to sit down after a while. I'm gonna make sure my voice is nice and loud. Um, feel free to close your eyes and use the rich imagery of the book. That way you're not staring at me and making me really embarrassed, you know? So. <laughs> So I'll start reading. I'm going to skip the intro. I will give you, I will advise you the people. I was telling Ms. Sesco that because the events with Hurricane Katrina happened so quickly and without notice and everything just happened one event after another, she wrote her book in the same fashion. Sometimes you don't know who's really talking. You have to let them finish talking and then you say, oh, it must be this character. It must be this character. And I naturally kind of changed my voice why was she moving to different characters? So you're gonna hear some funny things, but it's in character of the story. So this is Waiting Home, the author is Rosalind's story. And we're going to start with chapter one. New Orleans, August 2005. So just think about that time frame. Across the whole city, stillness lurks like a shadowy intruder. No noise of cars, trucks, buses, or streetcars, and in instead, and unseemly quiet, except for the rustle of the cypress leaves. On the river near its crescent, a moored barge floats. A silent steamboat hugs the dock. And nearby, the Vogue car stands oddly muted, its rowdiest bars quiet as an empty church. Up and down the blocks of the old shrimp, amid the rows of century-old wood frame houses where neighbors' music usually seeps from open doors and windows from the oldest Carmier boys' sousaphone hoots or Cordelia Lautrec's little angel's daughter's piano scales and eerie music holes, all the random noises of the neighborhood yielding to the stealthy overtures of a storm. In Simon's kitchen, a streak of late summer sun angles through back door blinds and sends a blade of gold across his stove. 
The old man stirs a huge iron pot of beans, only a camellia brand will do. For his domino night supper of red beans and rice, leaning a bristly chin over the pot, tasting a spoonful of the liquor, he sprinkles a dash of salt with artful, experienced hands as the steam fogs his glasses and his cataract-weakened eyes squint into the pungent whiff of garlic and thyme. He dips the spoon in for another taste, then glances out the thin pane of the back door window as the still light sky and sucks his tongue. The sun, usually in slow retreat on August evenings, will surely fade quickly tonight. I have to read a few, I hate to interrupt the story, but these are some of the characters. Simon. Fortier is the father. He's a New England native, New, New Orleans native, I'm sorry. He's in his 70s. Julian Fortier is his son. He is a jazz musician. He's a trumpeter. Genevieve is Simon's sister, the older man's sister. Vilmyra is an ex-girlfriend of Julian. Uh, they make reference to Jacob, which is Simon's dad, who is deceased, as well as his sister, Aunt Marie, and his wife is deceased, Ladina. So when you hear these names, you'll have a little more background about who they are. Continuing with the story. With no neighbor's music to entertain his dinner preparation, must have left town for higher ground, and only the cash-strapped or the fearless have hunkered down to brave out the night. Simon hums an old Pops Armstrong standard in a warbled, gritty baritone. Give me a kiss to build a dream on. He stirs his beans as the starch breaks down and thickens the soup, wielding the splintered old spoon Auntie Marie gave him some 60 years ago. With a clean white hanky from his back pocket, he blots the sweet beating on his forehead and turns down the flame. A loud flap from the backyard breaks the quiet. Oh, no, Simon groans, knowing what's happened. It's surely what he's feared for years. Simon wipes greasy fingers on a dish towel, slaps it down onto the counter, and opens the back door to assess the damage. Sure enough, the giant live oak planted by his daddy on the day Simon was born 76 years ago now stands an unbalanced amputee, its long bottom limb lying on the ground. Mm, mm, mm. Simon shakes his head, rests a hand on his hip, that branch was rotten for sure. Too many storm seasons, too many nights like tonight. But he pushes back the thought. Could be an omen. Something about to break apart tonight. Something about to change. Stooping down to the ground slowly and favoring the weak place in his back, he drags the branch to the side of the house, opens the storage shed door and hauls it inside, lungs winded and legs stiff. He dusts his dry hands on the legs of his khaki trousers. With a wild storm on its way, that big branch could easily take flight and slam into somebody's window, like what happened with the one they called Betsy. Maybe even his window. That wouldn't do. Maybe he should board up his windows like the Du Bois up the street. Or maybe he should have before. Too late now. Simon pulls his cotton shirt collar around his neck against the wind whipping through the tall pecans that separate his yard from the moutons. The air was heavy, thick and warmish, with clouds curling in quick choreography. The breeze carrying the faintest scent of salt water drifting in from the gulf, the sky changing fast. Looking up in awe, Simon smiles, despite their frightening intent. The shapes shifting clouds are beautiful. Plump tusks of gunmetal gray, silver rimmed, reflected, reluctant light still blazing through. On the west side of the house, near a pile of chopped wood along the chain link fence, Simon's herb garden shivers, looks a little wind whipped. Maybe he should cover him with burlap. 
He grows everything himself for his cooking, always has, like Auntie Marie taught him. More than 30 years as head chef at a top drawer of French Quarter restaurant hadn't dulled his taste for the freshest basil and thyme time he could get. And even now, six years after his last shift at Parmenter's, he still demanded the best ingredients for his own table, even though he mostly dined alone. He stoops and snaps off a leaf of the lavender, crushes it in his fingertips, inhales the sweet scent as a slender face blossoms in his mind. Lavender in the garden had been Ladina's idea, and on her final birthday, he had surprised her with a sachet of homemade potpourri for her sickbed pillow. Dried lavender leaves, orange and lemon rinds, store-bought clothes. If he'd known the smile his wife surrendered up at that moment would be her last, he'd have framed it in his memory. The other herbs, the oregano, the mint, the basil, now tall as defense, bow under the hand he runs across their heads. He will have a lot to prepare tomorrow. Simon glances at his watch. The beans have been on almost an hour now. Sylvia, mad as he, she was at him, had already said she wasn't coming, not even to say goodbye. And if none of the men were going to stop by for a bowl or two of the best red beans and rice in town, just as they had done for the last seven years, well then, tough luck for them. This Andouille solid sausage was the best he ever made. He and his buddies and the elegant gents were among the oldest members of the neighborhood's social aid and pleasure clubs and didn't limit their gatherings to the occasional parades through the neighborhood when they strut like black kings in their handsome stitched shirts of blue paisley and matching hats, white suspenders, and Johnston and Murphy shoes, the hot brass band riffs licking through the wind. No, unlike some of the other S&Ps, the gents were like brothers, friends, old and true. And true friends, at least his, made a point of laughing and lying and signifying over cooking pots and dominoes once a week, come hell or high water. But not hurricane. A car horn, a car horn tooth. The rattling complaint of a well-used Toyota Camry announcing Sylvia's arrival. She must have changed her mind. Simon's face breaks into a wide grin. Maybe there'd be some company for this storm night after all. Simon calls out as Sylvia parks along his front fence. Just in time. Red beans will be ready in about 20 minutes. My, my, looking good today. But didn't she always? Sylvia McConnell, wearing her 68 years gently, stylishly, steps out in green capri pants and a yellow cotton top, leans her backside against the door, slender arms folded across her chest and ankles crossed. A scarf of light blue silk tied under her chin stands beneath her freshly curled and dyed hair and the capricious winds of Louisiana summer. Even now, Simon notes, even in retreat from a hurricane, she found time to help keep her standing appointment at Miss Lou's. My sister and them call from Shreveport. The brother-in-law is bringing his mama, but they still got room if I need to bring somebody else. A divorced English teacher from Weekly High, an old acquaintance of Simon's and Ladina's from Blessed Redeemer Congregation. Sylvia reveled in the freeman of retirement, spending most of her days playing bridge, singing high soprano in the gospel choir, occasionally watching Simon cook, and listening to her, his animated dietries on his life's loves, cooking his talented and smart as a whip son, Julian, and a perfect piece of land called Silver Creek. A year after Ladina died, when the, sh the shine of his grief had dulled, Simon's padlock world had unlatched to invite Sylvia in. Time had tamed the rough edges of mourning, and Sil Simon needed a new comfort, the living, breathing kind. 
On a Wednesday morning when his car battery failed and he had no way to prayer meeting, he remembered last Sunday, the high soprano floating above all the others and lead me, guide me. Sister McConnell gave him a ride and in time, a reason to dream again. She was funny, spirited like Ladina with a twist of sass. She could cook up a mean and too fat. Not as good as his. And whenever his spirits darkened, there was that laugh that could soften a man's heart and make his blues disappear like swamp mist beneath the full sun. Now don't even start. I already told you what I'm doing. Shaking her head, she turns to look up at the sky as a heavy gust sweeps through the trees. Don't be a fool, Simon. You need to get out of this place. And for the next three minutes straight, she rails on about his foolishness. The storm will be the worst ever. Everybody with four wheels and half a brain is leaving, and so on. When she sees his eyes shut down, the thick bunched veins in his temple twitch and his mouth clamp shut, she recognizes her cue to stop. For a moment, they look at each other in unyielding silence. Sylvia's glance falls to Simon's khaki pants, where the tree branch has left a swath of dirt. What happened to you? Looking down, Simon scraped his thumbnail at the L-shaped mark. Oh, damn, oh, lost a branch. Sylvia sighs. Uh-huh, see there? Already she sucks her cheek. Somebody trying to tell you something. Ignoring the fact that he had the same thought only a few minutes ago, he turns to walk into the house. Drive careful. They already talking about traffic backed up. You better get on your way if you're going. For all his testiness, it might have been her bossy strain, her spitfire nature that kept him interested. It was as if Ladina had left a little bit of herself in this woman to watch after him, remind him when he was being careful, careless. He liked that, being looked after, being cared after. Even when he didn't listen, even when he stiffened his shoulders against the headwinds of her complaints. At the steps, he turns back to her, his tone kinder. I'll save you some of my amblee. You're not going to believe how good these beans are. Best pot I ever made. The feathery breeze ruffles her scarf as she pulls it closer. Does that pot float? You best put those beans in some Tupperware. Eat well, baby, because you'll need your strength in case you have to swim. He ignores that, too. Sure you don't want to stay? I'll make it worth your while, he winks. Laughing, she shakes her head again. Simon Fortier, I'll be praying for your sorry butt in my sister's dry house. She gets in the car and leans an elbow out the window. By the way, you might as well know I stopped by because Julian called me, asked me to check on you. He said you all had some words. Did he call back? Simon's skin prickles. Two weeks since their blow up over Parmenter and still their words stumbled bro broken and bruised into the growing gulf between them. And yesterday, when his son had called from New York, told him to stop acting like a crazy old fool, even offered him a plane ticket. A slow dirge of hurt still played in Simon's head. He quietly hung up the phone in the middle of Julian's rant. Sometimes, Simon swore, all that fame business had gotten to that boy's head, made him forget who really was his daddy in this deal. He, Simon, never would have treated his own daddy that way, lest the back of his head land somewhere upside his head. Nor would his father have treated his father like that. The 48 men were of the no-nonsense breed. Simon's daddy had built the house with his two rock-hard hands 78 years ago and would have thought nothing of using one of them to take down a two-grown son with a runaway mouth. World-famous trumpet player or not, Julian ought to show more respect. No, Julian ain't called. Simon put his hands in his pocket and lift, looks up at the ruffled sky. Not since yesterday. Sylvia starts the engine. Well, you know the boy had a point. 
Simon doesn't know whether she's talking about Julian's anger at him for not leaving before the storm or for that business with Matthew Parmenter, the latest item on the list of painful issues that divided father and son like prickly thorns and which was already really none of Julian's business anyway. Either way, he's hurting up. I gotta check on my beans, Simon said. Did you get your blood pressure prescription filled? Simon laughed. Woman, leave me be. If I die, just carry me on up to the Silver Creek. Dump me under that magnolia tree next to Ladina. Right. Sylvia rose her eyes. You and Silver Creek. Why don't you just go on back there where, where you need to live? Then you can be her problem for the rest of eternity. Then thinking about it, Simon strokes his chin, narrows his eyes into a sly squint. But then who be up here to meddle with you? She laughs a little, furrows her perfectly arched brows. Stay well, Simon. Be careful. I worry about you, silly man. Simon smiles through his twinkling eyes. Don't. I'ma be fine. Take care, sweet lady, he says after her in a voice she couldn't possibly hear. Okay. I'm gonna skip a little further because it's moving a little slower. Okay. The main event was on. In minutes, the wind bellowed, rising now and then into a, a thin, 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 shrill song like a disgust cast. Simon's father had built the house well, but it would still be a long night. Simon stacked his dishes in the sink, opened the pantry door, and fumbled through a pile of old clothes, boots, checker sets, and domino boxes until he found the box as big as a hamper. He pulled it out and dragged it in the middle of the floor, the hurricane box. Ladina had always been one to prepare for the worst. After her passing, he'd still drag it out year after year out of loyalty or reflex, and now he pulled the items out one by one, an oil lamp, a flash, a first aid kit, a box of wooden matches, and an unopened box of tapers, a hand crank radio, and three bags of dried soup he picked up in an army surplus store in Baton Rouge. He put the dry suits back in, but set the oil lamp and the, and the radio still bearing his price tag on the floor next to the box. And from a deep corner, he pulled the Bible Jacob 48 had given him on his 16th birthday, a week before he died. Simon ran his fingers along the brittle edge of the dry leather. He pulled out his chair from the dining room table, sat and opened the Bible. He turned to the first page, the name page, and at the end of the list of the 48 verse, he traced his hand over his father's Wrigley script, Simon 48, born July 8, 1929. And then his fingers traced the words written in his own hand, Julian 48, born August 13, 1969. Seeing his father's hand always brought mist to his eyes, but tonight it was the sight of Julian's name that moved him. A frail and sickly newborn delivered with a tiny hole in his heart. The boy had been given less than ever time for survival. On Julian's birth night during the surgery, Simon found himself sitting in the cold fluorescent glare of his father's waiting room, head bowed between his hands, bargaining with the Lord. When the child was finally given a good bill of health, Simon found a payphone and called his closest relations, his Auntie Marie and cousin Genevieve at Silver Creek. How is he? Genevieve's voice was cautious. Simon had pushed the words out through a cloud of tears. Scrawny, no color. Doc says he'll be okay though. Probably good as new. Lord Jesus, Genevieve cried and called to her mother. I'ma send you some of my herbs to him. Auntie Marie had told him in her usual too loud telephone voice. 
Okay, we're gonna skip on a little bit. Okay, Simon went to the window and peered out, the sky black now, the wind spanking the trees in rhythmic frenzy, the pounding rain all but horizontal. The wind bellowed and called like something with bare teeth and scratching claws. His, his pulse quickened. Simon went to the kitchen to pour himself a drink. The bourbon left over from last year's July 4th block party left, left to calm his racing mind. He found it on the top shelf of the refrigerator and a half-filled of, uh, half of Pilsner glass, then sat in his recliner and leaned back to listen to the banshee screams of the worst winds he'd ever heard. His house pounded with the steady drumbeat of thunder and wind and sudden fear. Something unnerved him, and he wished for all the world that he had talked to Julian tonight. There was always a comfort, a reassurance in hearing his son's voice, no matter how far away he was, no matter what they were going through. He turned up the whole glass, then leaned back in his recliner and frowned as the slow burn of the liquor took hold in his gut. He closed his eyes and let the drink numb his muddled thoughts. For the day, grayness and spitting rain consumed the sky. That night, he slept soundly, and when he woke the next morning, it was to the sound of water crashing through his door and quickly gathering around his bed. Chapter 2, Tokyo, August 2005. He should, have been lit. he should have been having the time of his life. He'd missed the scene for so long, the cavern-dark room pierced by the spotlight's amber glow, the rhythmic session kicking a tight groove, the people digging his music and ready to unleash their adulation. It could have been any stage, almost anywhere, and this was the scene that got his juices going. So the moment he stepped onto the Blue Note Tokyo stage 25 minutes ago, it had felt like coming home. But now, the pain burrowed so deep it made him dizzy. The sound was still coming out of his trumpet, but it was as if he was standing outside of himself, watching his own fingers move, almost admiring their ability to go on while everything else in him wanted to seize up or shut down. With the lightning quick tempo the drummer had set, he struggled to keep up as the wall of sound, piano, bass, drums, tenor, roared like a train on a downhill track full speed ahead, with him or without him. Another pain buzzed through his jaw and his embouchure froze. He stopped playing and shook his head while the piano covered him, took up the flat. The room grew hot, airless, as sweat beaded above his lip and his neck tightened. While the pain burned on, the spotlights glared like headlights. Suddenly, he felt like some four-legged creature who staggered onto a highway in front of a truck, blinded by the lights and frozen with fear. He couldn't do it, couldn't go on. So even though they hadn't reached the bridge of the tomb, he leaned over to the pianist. He whispered hoarsely in his ear, slow, anything slow, then we quit. He barely got through the ballad, even though he'd written it himself, and he was the first one off the stage, ducking into the small backstage room reserved for the band, sitting on the sofa, chest pumping hard as he crossed his legs against the cool black leather. Julian Fortier filled his winded lungs with air and exhaled a ragged sigh, then uncrossed his legs, leaned back, and stared up at the pale gray walls. One by one, the others in the quartet came in, each more deliberately quiet than the next. The pianist gave him a flickering questioning look, then turned away, and having nothing better to do, pulled out his cell phone and tapped on the keyboard. The bass player coughed nervously as he zipped the canvas cover around the rented instrument. The tenor player and drummer, not knowing what else to do after putting horn and drumsticks away, looked at each other and then headed to the table laden with bottles of Perrier and food that the management of the club had graciously supplied. 
No one spoke. The tension in the room was as thick as the fog had been in that early morning across Tokyo Bay before settling over the downtown of the city. All the men averted their eyes from each other, waiting for their band leader to explain. But for the moment, the trumpeter sat smoothing the crease of his pinstripe gray pant leg, his horn beside him, trying to make sense of what went down in front of all those people, imagining the reviews in the Tokyo press, celebrated jazz trumpeter bombs and premature comeback, something like that, or worse. He grabbed his trumpet off the cushion next to him and rapidly fingered the valves. It wasn't supposed to happen this way. He'd been okay at the rehearsals. He should have breezed through the set like a pro he was. His jaw sufficiently healed after the accident, his tone rolling sweetly and effortlessly out of his horn, notes flying unconsciously and his mind zooming in a zone where he could do no wrong. Applause should have thundered from the table since the Japanese, among the most appreciative of his fans, were the first to hear him after an 11-month absence from studio and stage. He should have been the hero of the night. Instead, the applause had been weak, polite, yet confused. He felt like tucking his tail and running, and that's exactly what he had done. He had to tell the guys the worst possible news. The gig was over. On top of that, they'd have to take a whopping cut and pay for an incomplete date and hope the club would let him reschedule when he fully recovered, if he ever did. The hottest jazz club in Japan would have to go dark for the rest of the week while he hunted down the next orthopedist. Hey man, don't sweat this. You'll be back. Antoine, the short and athletically stocky pianist and a hell of a player to just 25 and a loyal friend, stood over him, his large eyes calm, a sushi roll in one hand, the other extended out to him. The trumpeter grabbed it and clasped it, then put his hand back on his jaw. Feels like it's on fire. That sucks, man. Julian rolled his eyes, leaned against the sofa, stretching out his long legs. Then he raised himself forward and got, and got up. Guess I better talk to everybody and tell them what's going on. Uh, everybody, listen up. I've got something to, but as he spoke, Jeffrey, the drummer, held up a quieting finger. His head angled up like the other men, their eyes locked on a flat panel TV screen placed high on the wall in a corner near the door. Across the bottom of the screen broadcasting CNN Live, the crawl read, Levees breached, 80% of New Orleans underwater. Julian felt a gasp leave his body and something flipped over in his stomach. The band of heat around his neck tightened even more and crept up to the pain spot on his jaw. He and the men, each one of them except him, born in the neighborhoods where they now lived in Brooklyn, watched in silence as footage of the flood flashed across the screen and captions told the story of the drowning city. Helicopters like giant steel dragonflies hovered over what looked more like rivers and streets, and boats and makeshift rafts cruised through the neighborhoods he recognized as well as his own reflection. And the camera panned back to the wide shot, all the men, as if on cue, each let out a rush of breath or shook their heads. Most of the city, even its freeways, appeared submerged in inky, shiny blackness. The thumping heat felt in his chest as he left the stage now returned. Nothing else mattered now. Not the horrible set he just played, the guys in the band, Matsumoto, the, the disappointed audience, or his aching jaw. All that mattered was what was happening to the place he was born in, the place where his father lived. Okay, God, what the, he rubbed the back of his head at the TV screen showing the Circle Food Store on St. Bernard, the black water skirting high up on his arches, their reflections skimming in the deep, dark pool. Only a short walk from where he'd grown up, the place where his father's favorite market was for years. 
His earliest memory had been holding his hand there while they walked in the distance to the neighborhood store, then peering up while his father studied the fresh red fish and shrimp for his Friday night fish fry, or waiting impatiently in the produce area where Simon, ever particular, scrutinized every pepper in search of the plumpest for his red beans. The Circle Food Store sat in the middle of the bowl in the city near the I-10 overpass, a spot rarely known to flood. If Circle K is flooded, Circle Food Source is flooded, then the whole damn city is done. It's two days ago, or was it three? He had trouble keeping the day straight since they crossed the international date line. He called his father and the conversation had not gone well. After a half an hour of trying to get Simon Fortier to see his point of view, that staying in town through a hurricane that size uh, was beyond foolhardy, he threw up his hands. Daddy, he said, his voice pitched high with exasperation. Hell, I'm not listening to this. Across miles of land and ocean, through the small static field cell phone, the resentment in his father's heavy breaths came through. Say what you want. I'm staying. I stayed for the last one, and I'm staying now. His hands shook. His father was the kind of man who lived by his gut, who prided himself on the wisdom of the still small voice in his head. But this time, Julian believed, the small voice had lied. He had never been so disrespected before. Despite his acquired ease with the ways of the big city folks, his finely honed manners were southern bred. In New York, his yes sirs and no ma'ams had drawn smiles of condescension more than once. He learned to stow these phrases away and unpack them only when he's visiting home. See, So when Simon stubbornly refused to leave the city, Julian opened his mouth and outrolled a fiery litany of admonitions that later would make him feel more shame and regret than he'd felt since he was a boy, catching it for having a mouth that sometimes trounced about in his head. At first, he thought the line had gone dead, but then realized that wasn't the case. His father had simply had enough. It was the first time they'd argued like that since he was grown, the first time either had hung up on each other. At some point, with everyone's eyes still fixed on the TV screen, Matsumoto, the owner, entered the room. Julian glanced over to see the disappointed darkening of his brown eyes. It had been a sold-out house after all, and the whole set scheduled to run a full hour had lasted less than 30 minutes. No doubt, people had complained. Matt, I'm so sorry, man. Matsumoto nodded solemnly, said nothing. He would have he would have to take the flak this time, explained to the owners. Leaving a week of audiences hanging in a place like the Blue Note Tokyo was no small thing. Some pointed at the television screen again. A helicopter shot showed a group of weary, sweating people trudging th up through water, up through their waist. Others hung on for their lives while the water had chased them, the top balconies of apartment houses and rooftops. Then the camera swept over to other parts of the city, the Ninth Ward, New Orleans East, Port Chetran Park, St. Bernard Parish, all disappearing in a still reflective, reflective ocean. Bile gathered at his throat. He wasn't feeling, he wasn't looking for a convenient out. But even if his chops hadn't failed him, he would have to, to bail anyway. Leave the country this moment if he could. He looked again at Matsumoto, then at the men in the band. I gotta go, he said, his voice breaking. I got to go. He took the first flight out the next day. By the time he arrived at JFK, sleep deprived, eyes puffy and red veined, he wasn't even sure what day it was. He was walking down the concourse of the domestic terminal toward the gate for a flight to Baton Rouge when his cell phone rang. Hello? The static was interrupting, but he recognized Sylvia's voice. 
Wait a minute, I can't hear you too well. Say that again? His eyes filled with tears. Right, I'll be there as soon as I can. Chapter three. He'd not been away all that long, but long enough. Like a sharp flavor fading on the tongue, the memory of the thick, damp heat, the kind that wrapped around you like a vine, weighed you down and slowed your steps to a sluggish stroll, had all but dissolved by the, in the time you had been gone. But today, the recollection came rushing back. The air here was nothing like Japan, where the days had been humid, but the winds brought the rains and the rains brought relief. It wasn't even like Brooklyn, where the sidewalks stored the August midday sun and threw it back at you late at night when you waited for a cool breeze that wouldn't come until September. And it was not at all like the sunny part of Spain, he liked near the coast, where the nights carried the sweet balm of southerly breezes and the chicas on the beach smiled at you when they brought you the umbrella drinks. And you forget all about how damn hot it was. He'd been all over the world, but there was nothing like this crazy Louisiana heat. As if he didn't already have enough troubling him, the flat tire on his rented neon threatened to tip his teetering nerves over the edge. His head throbbed. He peeled off his clingy shirt, something he would have never done in New York, but he was a homeboy, and he was down home. Humidity like this meant bearing your skin. Sweat dripped from his forehead, his shoulders, his back, as he squatted on the loose gravel of the breakdown lane, the only breeze stirred by the 18-wheelers that roared by. Having loosened the lug nuts, he rolled the small spare from the trunk to the front of the car. With this, with his slim muscle back to the September sun, he knelt and managed to jack the car up and get the tire off without screaming profanity. Once he secured the spare, he put his damp t-shirt back on and drove to find the nearest service station. Even in a city not ravaged by flood and strewn with post-storm debris, the tiny donut spare would be too treacherous to drive on. Some of the streets in town had been bad enough even before the storm. He spotted a Shell gas station not far down the road with a single bay car and pulled up uh, for car repair and pulled up to it as the attendant, a short brown-skinned man in his mid-thirties with tightly braided hair and wearing overalls without a shirt, took a drag from his cigarette and flicked it on the ground. Help you? Just need to have my flax fixed. Barely looking at the man, Julian tossed him his keys and went inside the air-conditioned store. An oasis of soft drink coolers consumed one wall, and he opened the door wide and let the clouds of ice water off air wash, wash over his face. He pulled a bottle of lemonade from the shelf and headed toward the front. An older man, frail-looking, with slicked-back silver hair and stooped shoulders, took up the bills Julian placed on the counter. Need any cookies or chips with that, he said? Nah, thanks. Julian opened the bottle and took a long drink. They say it's kind of bad over there in New Orleans. The man put Julian's change on the counter. National Guard everywhere. I hear they're not even letting folks back in yet. Julian nodded. Kind of bad. The understatement was almost comical. They just started, he said. Truth was, he snuck around checkpoints weeks ago to get to his father's house. He thought about his father and wondered how long he would have to shoulder the burden of regret over their last phone conversation. Do you even understand what mandatory evacuation means? The minute the words were out, he felt the blood leaving his face. The silence and hang up afterward had stung Julian worse than the hickory switch spankings that welded his legs during his father's rare moments of childhood discipline. Nail, right there, he said. Julian looking up at Julian and pointing to the bent metal jutting out of the tread. I'll patch it up. It'll be a few minutes. 
Julian nodded and walked across the grassy lawn between the off-ramp strip of businesses and the highway as a rare breeze floated through the fronds of the nearby stand of palmettos. He took a long swig from the ice lemonade. The sky was brilliant, electric blue, and the late morning sun was burning into the concrete. The traffic along the I-10 corridor was still clotting now, and then as convoys of cars and trucks, semis, and even government jeeps paraded east, a steady stream toward New Orleans. Oh, got it ready for you, man. The attendant was handing him an invoice. That'll be $8. Julian pulled four field four folded bills from his jeans pocket, and on second thought, took another two and folded it inside the others. Thanks, man. The attendant handed him the keys, and Julian headed towards the car. From behind him, he heard another car pulling off the ramp and into a lot, into the lot of the station. A vintage Camaro, painted a dull and rusting blood red, heated, heaved, and sputtered, then died a few feet from, from Julian. Its owner got out, a tall, slender man in worn jeans and a sweat-soaked white t-shirt his shoulders sagging, a sickle-shaped scar across his cheek, a blue baseball cap capped down against his brows. Julian gave the man a nod. Sounds like you could use an alternator, maybe. The man gave him a long, hard look, then his face opened into a smile. 48, you don't recognize me, man? Julian stared at the man, minding his memory for some recollection of those features. The deep brown eyes, what he could see of them beneath the cap, were familiar, and the scar, and the drooping shoulders, and the angle of that cap, and suddenly, from Julian's forgotten past, emerged the sound of a sizzling trumpet. Casey, he said, Grady Casey. The man's smile flared into a wide grin that made the scar look like an extension of it. He stuck out his hand, and Julian grabbed it, pulling him in for a chest bump hug. Been too long, man, since grinning. Casey dug his hands in both pockets and rocked his weight from foot to foot. Guess I dropped a few pounds since I seen you. Whoa, I guess you did, Julian nodding, smiled, looked at him up and down. I didn't even recognize you. Good to see you, man. You playing much? Casey hunched both shoulders. Well, you know, he started and he glanced over his shoulder in the direction of the highway marker, New Orleans. I was. Casey... Julian's mind hurled back to the seventh grade, Mr. Martrell's band class. Grady had been a pudgy kid with protruding ears and a girl's high-pitched voice, alternately Julian's best friend and worst enemy as the two clashed over bragging rights, each claiming musical dominance over the other. In a town where trumpet players ruled, they had both followed in the city's great tradition. But since their late teenage years, their lives had evolved into opposing sides of the coin. Julian, hardworking, serious, with a passion for music that bordered on obsessive. Casey, careless, unfocused, but with a talent that dazzled, seeming to draw from some limitless source. As a musician, Grady Casey was, as the close-knit community of horn players in town acknowledged, fierce. Their rivalry, most friendly but sometimes strained, had carried underpinnings of one-man upship. Their cutting sessions, intense battles were riffs shot back and forth between the bells of their horns like top-spinning tennis balls, usually resulted in a draw. But when Julian would pull out every stop, lips numbed and forehead lathered in sweat, Casey at the other end always appeared cool and unchallenged. But it had been Julian who left for New York in search of a spot on the big stage. While Casey manned the home turn, he married a local jazz singer, a white woman 12 years his singer, Julian had heard, and taught at a local music school by day and gigged at night. While Neon Marquez back east heralded 
Julian Fortier as the jazz world's emerging star. A Grammy followed a top spot on the downbeat reader's poll while club dates and tours crowded his calendar. His brilliant rival was barely known outside the limits of New Orleans and had no ambitions for them. Okay. Casey squinted from the sun, shading his eyes with his hand. Your daddy and them okay? Julian looked away from Casey towards the bend where the highway disappeared into a grove of cypresses. And then he turned back to meet his old rival's eye. He stayed through it, man. We haven't found him yet. Oh, man. Casey pulled a pair of black sunglasses from his sweaty shirt pocket and put them on. I got three cousins still missing. I think they went to Atlanta. At least I hope. Everybody else just, you know, trying to deal. Casey shook his head, his brow furrowed, his eyes glassy. He looked toward the highway. Man, I just can't believe this mess. It's like judgment day or something. You know what I'm saying? You have been there? The whole city is wasted, man. You seen your daddy's house? The house is a bust, man. I just want to find my father. I know, man. I know. The awkward silence passed between them. Finally, Julian said, what's the deal with your car? Relieved to turn the conversation to mundane car troubles. This piece of crap, this ain't even mine, man. It's my brother's. Mine's six feet underwater. Got my horns out, though, man, Casey smiled. I left everything else there. Just grabbed my two B-flats and my cornet and my flugel horn. Julian smiled. I heard that. You know what, man, Casey said. What? You were smart to leave. He had his head hanging and his eyes downcast. Julian felt less than a smart man and more like a traitor. When he left for New York, Casey had all but called him that since Julian was so willing to ditch the brass band they had recently formed together in favor of a possible solo recording date and a slim shot at a big time career. Record? We could do that here, man, Casey had pleaded. But even before he'd packed and said goodbye to his father and boarded the last flight out, of Louis Armstrong, Julian was already gone. Well, you tell your old lady I said, hey, we'll do, Casey nodded. You married yet? Nah, man. Oh, that's right. You had that one close call, but you got away. Okay, chapter four. On St. Charles Avenue in the Garden District, the grand house still shone in the metallic wash of the sun like prim, white-haired matrons, as if nothing happened. Sweeping turfs of gold fronted the century-old wrought iron gate mansions, their spine erect, their clapboard unstained. The giant bathtub ring that roped most of the low-lying city had faded with a rising higher ground. But the St. Charles trees remembered. The nightmare music of the killing winds had stunned them, and the panicked trunks of the cypresses still leaned against the memory the way the children flinched from a hand of pain. Okay. He parked across from the Catholic Church, dug into his gym bag for a clean white t-shirt and put it on. Getting out of the car, he swabbed at his forehead with an overused handkerchief and stared at the brass numbers 1924, the clean white columns of Matthew Parminer's Victorian-style house, the gate that fenced in a yard of only slightly overgrown juniper grass. The house looked even more impressive than he remembered. He turned up his bottled water for a last swig, tossed the empty onto the car seat, and tried to brush back a nagging thought. If things had worked the way they should have, Daddy could have lived on this street. Daddy would be safe. 
He climbed the steps to the gallery, glancing into the darkened windows of the leaded bevel glass. Austere and private, the St. Charles house had never offered visible clues of life inside, even before the storm. But Julian guessed the old man was inside. Older than his father and many years retired, the former restaurateur rarely left the house. Like two stubborn and embattled sea captains, neither man would have jumped ship for a mere storm. This would not be easy. His father's horrible business deal, all that lost money, still smarted like a glancing wound. But he pulled the Molstay mo mo note from his pocket and read it again, then tucked it back. Matthew Parmenter is daddy's friend. For Simon's sake, he rang the bell, sighed deeply, and waited. An hour earlier, he had met with Sylvia at Andine's Oysters, a little dive at the edge of the French Quarter, not far from the French Market. A bar, really, with a cardboard sign outside had boasted throughout the entire storm and evaluation, we never closed. He took a seat in the back and ordered a coffee, then another as he waited. The dark interior seemed normal. The only sign of post-catastrophe afterlife was the clump of National Guardsmen gathered around the bar in severe haircuts and khaki fatigues. He stood and waited when Sylvia entered, the open door allowing a momentary flush of rectangular sunlight into the room. Morning, he held out his, her chair as she sat. With no makeup, her hair tied in a scarf, she looked, for the first time she had, he had seen her since that Sunday afternoon after the storm, close to her age. Her eyes were puffy, red-rimmed by worry and insomnia. Morning, baby, she said, wearily untying her scarf and putting her curlless, gray-rooted hair. You drinking coffee? Shoot, I need me something stronger than that. Julian smiled. When his father had introduced him to Sylvia one sunny Labor Day after he and his buddies and the elegant gents had set second line through the trim, a seldom seen sparkle had seemed to backlight Simon's eyes. Clearly, it had been Sylvia who, after Ladina had died, lifted Simon out of his quicksand of grief and got him interested once again in living. Stronger? I'm sure they can help you with that. He nodded towards the bar. If you're hungry, somebody brought a whole box of muffalettas from the National Guard and the cops and the volunteers. They're telling everybody to help themselves. They deserve a lot more than that for trying to clean up this mess of the city. Lord have mercy. I tell you, I haven't had a decent night's sleep since all this happened. I'll split a sandwich with you, but baby, I got something to show you. She exhaled a huff of air. Well, I went back to Simon's, she said, leaning forward with her eyebrows arched and her eyes bright and brimming with something he had hoped. I just felt like we missed something, so I took my nephew with me. Let me see. Uh, he unfolded the paper. The handwriting was unmistakable. The dramatic, forward-leaning slant, the longest strokes, it was Simon. Julius heart jumped. He looked up, his eyes wide. Where'd you? Rashad climbed up to the attic through a little door in the ceiling of the bedroom closet. Simon must have been up there for days, hours. This note was wedged in between the beams of the attic ceiling. This is it, baby. Simon got out. He's safe somewhere. He read the note. Julian read the note, his eyes brimming. Julian, I don't know where I'm going, but I got to get out of here. I don't know if I'll make it because there's so much water out here. Find me if you can or what's left of me. If something bad happens, then take me back to Silver Creek and lay me down beside your mama. I love you, son, no matter what. Your dad. Julian looked up from the letter, his eyes glazed, his throat tight. The last two lines sank and burned like a sharp knife pressed to his chest and would have hurt even if he hadn't wasted his last conversation with his father being disrespectful. Julian rubbed his temple. He could be anywhere. 
He could have, anything could have happened after he wrote this. But this tells us that he tried to get out. He tried, baby. Did your father ever talk to you about Silver Creek? He almost laughed. When Julian missed the chance to burn Julian's ear about Silver Creek, there were five feet of water in the street. Silver Creek's farther than Baton Rouge. No way he could have gotten there without his car, and his car is still at the house, rusting away. He could have gotten a ride there. You know, I tried to call Cousin Genevieve at Silver Creek a bunch of times. Nobody there, Sylvia. Sylvia finally reached in her purse, pulled out a thick wad of paper, each one with handwritten names and phone numbers. She waved them in the air. I don't know what else to do. Besides the two of us, we must have made 400 calls all over the state. I think we need some help now if we're ever going to find out what happened to your father. In the next breath came the words, Matthew Parmenter. Remember, the man's got connections and he's your father's best friend. I think I better stop because there's never a good spot. It's just not a good, it's just not. I would just suggest that you read the book. I kind of question myself. It's just so full of rich history that she gives a just big, deep, I mean, the words and sentences go on and on, but that's part of the history of Louisiana. Um, there's just so much history with part of it, and you know that with slavery happening in the Caribbeans and things moving up into the states, there's just so much that goes on in the history of there and the houses. Everything really means something. I just think our culture has gotten away from that, and I think she tried to capture that when she was writing this book. So those were only the first two or three chapters. I was skipping some paragraphs because it just goes on and on to explain more, um, and I'm just going to stop there. I can give any answers about this book. I finally finished it. <laughs> it was really good reading. And I believe this was her first or second book. She only has two books out. So any questions, comments, anything? Yes? Um, I forget who you said it in the beginning. Is it um, fiction or nonfiction? It really is fiction. Okay. Um, I wasn't sure if it was from her own family's experiences. She never let someone. She never lets on. It's, I don't know if she gathered things from people she knew, um, but this is very realistic. I'm quite sure somebody somewhere has lived through that experience with losing family, losing track of family members, the phone lines going dead. Um, I, I don't want to give away the end of it unless somebody asks me. It is just the turn of events is amazing. So. Yes. Yes. And uh, I don't know much about her mom, dad, but does she have, was she originally from New Orleans? Uh, they 
would say so in the acknowledgement. She lives in Dallas. And um, I was just so happy over the book. I didn't even take time to really read. They do say in the acknowledgements um, a little bit about her. But she never really comes out and says anything about her. It was all about the book or the people who helped her to write the book. So that's more research for all of us to do so we can figure out where she came from. So, yes. Have any of you been to New Orleans immediately after the storm? About nine months afterwards, I took a truckload of art supplies to and school was down mm -hmm. to St. Bernard Parish. Yeah. The night we were across the state line in Mississippi. And I'm telling you, nine months after yeah. that storm, I remember what I remember of it is people, and all the people who were helping, were standing in lines, 30 and 40 people. Fast food wagons along the street. There wasn't a store open. There yeah. wasn't a gas station open. We went 35 miles to get gas. Oh my gosh. There were porta potties at the intersection of the Dermot streets. This is nine months after yeah. the storm. Yeah. There was no water, no electric, not a store open for 35 miles. Mm -hmm. It's my mm -hmm. It's amazing. I know our church van. Well, I won't say van. They sent a truck and things. They lots of workers and things. And there was I I can't remember the initials, but they had initials for certain houses where there were dead people. And yeah, I cannot yeah. right all of that. It's just astounding. And um, I have a best friend of mine who is like a big sister to me. She's originally from there, and she's taught me how to cook some some Cajun sorts of foods. They have a recipe in here that I am going to try. So I'm going to go back and find it for red beans and rice. I'm going to find it. I know it's not going to be as authentic, but I'm going to try my best. It wiped out her family's, her mother had to move up north and she stays with her in, uh, in the Cleveland area because they lost everything. There was nothing to go back for. So it, it's just amazing how, it's almost like a little bit of Haiti right here in America. It is still left undone, unbelievable. Too. We were, I mentioned the word Matthew Parmenter. He was the restaurateur who hired Simon to be a chef there. Simon was an extraordinary chef who just was well known for his cooking. And he made a business deal with Matthew Parmenter to, that he didn't really agree with, with putting out a commercial brand of red beans and rice that he didn't like. Well, it sold well and he made lots of money off of it. And his son resented him for doing that. And Simon could have cared less. He said, it's just a bag of rice. It's nothing like my original. So he just did not care about the money that went along with it or could have really put him up into fame and fortune. Um, I'll leave it at that. Uh, we'll just, you know, and then, of course, his son felt like this white man had taken advantage of his father, though his father was very emphatic. I don't care what happens. This is my best friend and stayed my best friend. And I don't want any part of that because if it couldn't be his original cooking, he didn't want any parts of it. I can't tell you more about it because we give the story away. Um, they eventually, the Sylvia meets up with uh, Genevieve. Those are other family relatives. They were safe because they got out of the city. They all met at uh, one of the relatives' houses, and he hears a familiar voice. 
is his ex-girlfriend who came along, who Simon absolutely loved, and they broke up for certain reasons. I'll leave that story untold. And I think that's all of the characters, and they just kind of flip-flops. There's a turn of events, and it's always, as soon as you say, okay, this is moving too slow, something else happens. So it's just, she does a lot of explanation, but it does give you a rich history of what had happened leading up to these events. So um, now I want to read her other book. There's one that says, So Now I Sing, and another one is um, More Than You Know. That's the next one that I'm looking for. So anything else? Any comments about it? Are there any parts that seemed extremely slow? I don't know what I couldn't hear myself read. Was it okay? I, I need, okay, because I was like, are we kind of boring these people to die? I can't do, I'm trying to remember where I can skip forward without missing too much information. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Thank you for listening.